You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. So put a finger in Matthew 14 and then put a finger in uh, Psalm 23. We'll be in both of those texts today. Um, just as a disclaimer, if you are new here or visiting for the first time, um, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Um, I'm going to be talking mostly to uh, people who call reality home, that call um, this, this community their family. Um, we have had, as a church community, a really hard 2014. Like, we've lost a lot. Um, we've gained a lot, too, but we have experienced a lot of grief and sorrow, um, And I wanted to make sure that we recognize that as a community and as we move into 2015, that um, my hope is that we would recognize that Jesus has been with us in the midst of all of this hurt that we've gone through and that we would see exactly what it means that he is God with us. Like we say that Jesus is Emmanuel, but you know, what does that actually mean? What is his posture towards us, his people? So, With that disclaimer, uh, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guess, he commanded that it be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. And now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples said to him, "Uh, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, well, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate, and they were all satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000, besides women and children. Go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a very kind and compassionate God. And I believe that in the midst of one of the hardest years that I can remember, both personally and in this church family, that you have been with us in the midst. That you've been with us in the midst of loss, in the midst of death, in the midst of new life and gain. And I ask that today you, Holy Spirit, would connect each one of our hearts in this room as a family with you, and that you would remind us that you are with us, and that you love us, and that you're very present to us. So thank you, God. Would you allow me to get out of the way, and would, um, would your character and who you are as we look at these stories um, just be very clear? Amen. My wife, Alex, and I, uh, we love, love watching TV. Uh, We were kind of made to watch TV, right? In this church, we say that the truest thing about you is that you're loved by God, and that is very true. Um, But for Alex and I, the second truest thing about us is that we love sitting on the couch and watching a TV show, watching a movie. Um, And during the holidays, we have a very specific set of movies that we watch. You could call it a tradition, Uh, you could call it a regiment, it feels like both sometimes, Um, but it starts on the very first day of fall, or the very first fall night that actually feels like fall, right? We get an Indian summer here, so sometimes it's not till November, but that first night when it's actually cold, it just kind of smells like fall. We watch You've Got Mail, uh, which is really underrated, and I would highly recommend it to everyone. Um, so we start with You've Got Mail, and then from that point on, uh, usually most of November, we watch all eight Harry Potter movies, um, and that takes us pretty much a month because those movies are long and we split them up over a few days. Um, and then once December comes around, it is time for Christmas movies. And so we watch Elf, and we watch Christmas Vacation, and we watch both of those usually multiple times. Um, I watch my favorite Christmas movie, which is Die Hard, um, which, if you haven't seen it, is fantastic. Um, Sometimes Alex will watch it with me, sometimes she won't. And then on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, depending on where we are, uh, with my family, we will watch uh, White Christmas, which is really good. And then on either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, depending on what our schedule is, we watch the best, by far the best New Year's Eve movie of all time, When Harry Met Sally. Um, And this is the thing that we do every year, and we've done it ever since we were dating and and married. And um, this year, however, I noticed that I have had um, a decided lack of Christmas cheer. I haven't had any desire to watch these movies that I actually really love. I really love spending time um, in these stories. And I've just felt a little bit off. And I was reflecting on that, and I was actually praying about that, like asking God, God, why do I not want to do the thing that I usually do, which is sit down and watch these movies, which is kind of a weird thing to pray about, but whatever. Um, And I felt like the Holy Spirit um, responded in a couple ways. The first way was he said, you know, Josh, you really need to get out more. (laughs) You need to get off your couch and go outside. This is a really beautiful city. Go to the beach, go to Union Square, just get off the couch. I said, okay, that's fair. Um, I will do that. Um, the, second, the second thing that he brought to mind and as I was reflecting was that this year 
has been a year that has been a, full of a lot of pain and sorrow for, for our community, um, and even for the world at large. And it felt, I think the reason why I didn't have any desire to watch these movies is it felt almost naive of me to spend 90 minutes pretending like everything was okay, to spend 90 minutes in some story where everything works out perfectly when there was so much grief around me. And I'm not saying that um, if you watched Christmas movies this year that you're being naive. Um, if you watched The Christmas Story at 1 p.m. because it was on TBS, like it is all day, that's totally fine, I'm not judging you. Um, but just for me, it felt naive to, to spend my time in that way. And it makes sense in some ways that I would feel that. 2014, I think more than any year that I can remember in my lifetime, except maybe the year after 9-11, um, has been the most depressing and terrible uh, year that I can remember. Um, I was spending about, an, I spent an hour, a really depressing hour, uh, going through a list of news events from this year. And here's a bunch um, that I remembered and Googled. So, Take a look at that list. That is a lot of hurt, and that is a lot of pain, right? You have the largest Ebola outbreak in history that's killed over 7,000 people in Western Africa. Um, you know, we in America freak out when one person has Ebola in America, but in West Africa, over 18,000 people have been affected, and there's really no signs of, of it slowing down. Um, ISIS is a thing. Uh, that is the terrorist group that's just decimating Iraq. Um, and they're so evil that Al-Qaeda has actually said, like, yo, those guys are crazy. So Al-Qaeda has said that, those, that ISIS is nuts. Um, the deaths of, of Michael Brown and Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, John Crawford, and Nizel Ford has shown a light on really deep racial divides in this country and systematic racial injustice that has existed for a really long time in our supposedly post-racial America. The deaths of NYPD officers Ramos and Lou just this past week have left many, including myself, feeling hopeless and helpless to stop these systems of just reactive violence. Um, there's been a surge of over 70,000, at least, undocumented children trying to cross um, our borders, um, coming from war-torn gang, uh, gang wars and drug wars, um, war-torn countries in Central America and Mexico. Um, even this past week, there was a terrorist attack on a school in Pakistan, and terrorists killed over 100 children. And that doesn't even mention all the other things on this list. I mean, remember Malaysia Flight 370? Um, we lost an entire plane, like lost the TV show actually happened, like it just disappeared, and no one knows what happened. Even our pop culture and our sports has been depressing and touched by some of these terrible things. The Ray Rice situation and the NFL's mishandling of it in the NFL, the Donald Sterling uh, fiasco in the NBA, even our, our movies, our, our blockbusters from the summer, a lot of them just had to do with the world being over, like Interstellar, right? The whole story is that we run out of food and Matthew McConaughey saves us, which is great. Um, <laughs> Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is really good. Um, great San Francisco movie, actually. But that whole movie is about how the world has already basically ended. Humanity's not really a thing anymore, and there's these super-evolved group of apes that are going to take over the world. Um, and even Godzilla, where the monster that destroys the world and destroys, actually, our city, San Francisco, is somehow the hero of the movie. Like, by the end of the movie, he's the hero, right? There's something about this year that has revealed just how real evil is, right? 
how present injustice is and how deeply death can sting and how things are just not the way that they're supposed to be. And while I think it's really good that we have social media and the internet so that we actually hear about these things, um, because most of the things on, or that were on the screen have been going on for, for ever since humanity has been around, um, it can leave us, uh, at least it leaves me, feeling overwhelmed by the chaos of it all. And we seem to collectively recognize that this, there was a Wall Street Journal poll from this year that asked uh, adults if they thought that their kids would inherit a world that was better than our own. And 76% of people said, nope, like we don't have any confidence that our children are gonna have a better life than we do. As a collective culture, now more than ever, we are feeling the weight of the problems of our world. We feel that this is not how things are supposed to be. And even in reality, in our own community here, 2014 was a year of, of unprecedented pain and loss. Um, we had a member of our community indicted by the FBI. We had members of our church family have miscarriages, lose grandparents and parents and siblings, get diagnosed with cancer. Um, we have had members, deeply loved members of our community, die far too young. Sean Trank, baby Joel, and Hope Jones, people who we knew and loved and who were deeply woven into the fabric of our family, are gone to be with Jesus far too soon. So what are we to make? What are we to make of all this pain and all this injustice and all this sorrow? And I'm sorry if this feels heavy. It should feel heavy. It's been a heavy year, and I want us to feel that as we take a look at how Jesus would respond. How is Jesus God with us? What does that even mean? What is his posture towards us? Well, I think we get a clue in the stories that we just read. In the stories of Herod executing John the Baptist and then Jesus feeding the 5,000, we see a world that is similarly full of the very real threat of evil and death, and we see Jesus interacting with and responding to a people that are just trying to make sense of everything in the same way that I know a lot of us, I know that I am, just trying to make sense of it all. So let's take a look at the story of Herod executing John the Baptist. So that historical moment, the historical moment that these two stories take place in, are one of the darkest in the history of the world, and certainly in the history of Israel, God's people. At this point in the story, God's people haven't heard from God through a prophet in over 500 years. It's been half a millennia since there has been a prophet speaking with the authority and power of God. They're living in the land that God promised them, Israel, but they're being ruled by the most powerful empire maybe in human history, Rome. And they are waiting for this coming Messiah, right? This true king that God had promised in the Old Testament would come and free them from their oppressors, defeat their enemies, and establish God's kingdom on earth. But instead of a Messiah, instead of the true king, they have Caesar, ruling with an iron fist from Rome. And more locally, they have tetrarchs, these petty rulers, these rulers that rule very small geographic areas, calling themselves king, put there by Rome to keep them in line, basically. And more specifically, in this story, they have Herod Antipas as their tetrarch. And Herod 
is just kind of a turd. He is one of the worst characters in the New Testament. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee, which is the area that Jesus at this point in the Gospel of Matthew had um, been doing most of his ministry and performing miracles and teaching. He, was, uh, he called himself the King of the Jews. He was the son of Herod the Great, who you might remember from the Christmas story, um, who uh, kills all the two-year-old boys and under in Bethlehem. He inherited a third of his father's kingdom, and he was married already, and then he went and visited his brother, his half-brother Philip, and when he was visiting, he fell in love with his brother's wife, who also happened to be his niece in this really weird, incestuous web. And he decides he's gonna divorce his wife, and Herodias is gonna divorce his brother, and they're gonna get married. And John the Baptist, who was the first prophet speaking on behalf of God in nearly 500 years, speaking with God's power and authority, in his public ministry began to condemn the marriage as being unlawful and incestuous, which it was. And Herod, eventually, bitter and and threatened, has John arrested and thrown in prison. And John's in prison for over a year without any sort of trial, just kind of sitting there. And that is the background for, for this story. So, on Herod's birthday, he throws himself a party which is kind of lame. And at some point during the party, Herodias' daughter, so his stepdaughter, performs some sort of dance in front of Herod and all of the party goers. And no one really knows what kind of dance it was, but you can kind of guess. Um, this, uh, this girl was probably between the ages of 12 and 14. She's really young. And she dances to the point that um, Herod, most likely very drunk, is so overcome by desire for her, by lust for her, that he says that he will give her whatever she wants. One of the other accounts of this story, he says, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Just ask for it. It's yours. And he makes an oath. He says, I promise you. So she goes to her mother and she says, well, what should I ask for? And Herodias says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. I want it brought here. And so that's what she asked for. And and Herod um, has to do it. What's really interesting in this story is that the women, Herodias and her daughter, are pretty unique in the Gospels and that they're the only women in all of the Gospels that are remotely presented as bad in any way. Frederick Bruner says this, a commentator, he says, the women in this story are unique. No woman is reported to have denied Jesus in the Gospels. In the Gospels, it is women, not men, who wait at the crucifixion, who watch at the burial, and who visit on Easter. The closest women get to being bad in the Gospels is here at the beheading of John. Herodias' love of pleasure is so twisted that she can order on a plate the head of another human being. So Herod knows that John is a prophet. He knows that the people really love him, but he has to carry out this wish because he made an oath. And so he has John beheaded that day without a trial, and he has the head brought. Worst birthday party ever. (laughs) The picture that we have is of a cruel imitation of what a king is supposed to be, whose kingdom is everything that a kingdom shouldn't be, that's so, it's so ridiculously evil and perverse that it's almost funny, right? It's almost comical. Maybe the closest parallel in our day is uh, North Korea, right? Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un. There's something almost funny about how evil they are. Um, that's why a movie like Team America can just skewer Kim Jong-il, um, and it's, it's pretty funny. Um, 
probably shouldn't recommend that movie from the pulpit, but uh, I thought it was funny when I was in college, so. <laughs> um, but Kim, right, Kim Jong-un is currently leading, and he is um, almost a comical figure until you remember that there are millions of people living under his dictatorship, and they are hurting and starving, and they have no human rights. Then it stops being so funny. Herod's kingdom is weak, and it's cruel, and it is desperate to stay in power, and it's just stupid and unwise. It's unjust, it's illegitimate, it's brutal, it's perverse, and it's very simply evil. And that's the dark reality of the moment in which Jesus and the people of Israel were at the feeding of the 5,000. That's the context that we have for this incredible miracle where Jesus provides for 5,000 people at least. So imagine for a moment that you are in the crowd that day that Jesus feeds the 5,000. You're living under an evil ruler and system in a, a moment that is pervasively full of cruelty and injustice. It might be the darkest moment in your history when your first great prophet was killed on the incestuous whim of someone calling himself your king. How would you have felt? Imagine that, how would you have felt? Maybe it's actually not that much of a leap for some of us to imagine because we have felt at the end of a year like 2014, similar sorrow. We've felt the weight of similar injustice. And in the midst of all these confusing events, there's this man, Jesus, who's walking around, speaking with the incredible power of God, teaching in a way you've never heard before, healing people and performing miracles. One of the things that I really love about this story is actually the crowd's response. The crowd's response to Jesus. The crowd's response to a world as dark and confusing as the one that I just described. They just wanna be near Jesus. They want to be in his presence. They don't even totally understand why. Maybe, you know, my guess is they're probably a pretty jumbled mass of motives, but they know that they want to be around him. They want to be near him. In Mark's gospel, um, in his account of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that Jesus looked on them and saw that they were like a sheep, or they were sheep without a shepherd. They were desperate, they were hurt. Many of them were sick physically. They were unprotected and they were not tended to. And quite honestly, they didn't even have that much faith. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, what's really interesting is that the crowds are constantly presented as being fickle. One moment they're ready to make Jesus their king and the next moment they're wanting to kill him or they're doubting him or they're making fun of him. Just a chapter earlier in Matthew 13, Jesus actually says this about the people, the crowds that had been following him. He says that their hearts are calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. And yet, and yet, there's something in this moment where I think we can learn from their posture. There's something in them that says that being with Jesus in the midst of a grief-filled world is better than being alone, than being without him, which I think is a really wise response. And so how does Jesus respond to them? Well, the first way I think we see he responds is he is very present to them. He understands their reality. He is attentive to their every need. So Jesus is on a boat, right? He has heard about the death of John the Baptist. He is going to be in a desolate place by himself. He wants to be alone. He wants to pray with the Father. And he's on this boat, and word starts to spread that Jesus is around. And when he gets close to shore, instead of finding no one, he finds 10,000 people probably, because they only counted 5,000 men, so there were women and children there as well. 
And they are lost and hurting people in one of the darkest times in their history. And he sees them and it says that he has compassion on them. He looks out, he has compassion on them, he loves them. He places himself in the middle of them, right directly in the middle of the crowd. And he begins to heal them and to teach them. One one commentator says this, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle in Jesus' ministry present in all four Gospels. And why? Perhaps because it shows so comprehensively how Jesus is equal to all human need, whether spiritual or physical. And in this story, this is a very physical witness, right? It's a very physical presence. He steps onto the shore. He actually goes into the crowd. For me, as an introvert, if I saw 10,000 people waiting for me on the shore, I would just turn the boat back around and just sit in the middle of the lake until they all went home. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? He sees them, he puts himself right directly in the middle of them. And there are times when you read the Gospels where Jesus does the opposite. He actually removes himself from the crowd. He sees the crowd and says, you know what, I'm gonna stand on this boat and teach from the boat and they can sit on the shore or he, escapes from a crowd trying to kill him. But there's something about this moment where Jesus sees that he is physically needed. And so he stands among the people, and I imagine that he, he talks to them, he looks them in the eye, he touches them and heals them. It's a very physical witness. And with this simple act of him stepping offshore and beginning to heal and teach and perform this incredible miracle where he turns five loaves and two fish into a meal for 10,000 people, Matthew sets Jesus up as the exact opposite of Herod in every way, right? There's a reason why Matthew puts these two stories next to each other. He's contrasting the two kingdoms. So you have, it'll be on the screen, but you have Herod, right? Herod is, he's holed up in his palace. He is physically separate from his subjects, the people that he's supposed to be leading. He's throwing lavish, drunken birthday parties for himself. He's willfully neglecting the will of the people that he's supposed to be ruling over. He kills John knowing that the people really love him, that the people really respect him. He's a weak ruler who exercises his power through the unnecessary murder of an innocent. And then there's Jesus. Jesus sees the people and he loves them. He actually places himself physically in their midst. He's not in some palace far away, but he is in the middle of them. He's incredibly aware of them. He has compassion on them. And he shows his power through physical healing and through the miraculous altering of matter itself to feed 10,000. A commentator says this, he says the juxtaposition of Herod's preceding banquet and Jesus' banquet here is powerful. At Herod's banquet, there is pride and arrogance and scheming and even murder. It takes place at a royal court. At Jesus' banquet, there is healing and truth and sharing. It takes place in a deserted place. There's a warmth and an intimacy to Jesus' presence that is in direct contrast to Herod's cold, cruel tyranny. So that's the first way that Jesus, I think, responds to the people that are hurting. He is present to them, he is aware, and he meets their needs. The second way is that Jesus is their good shepherd. He is their powerful and their good shepherd. 
In the feeding of the 5,000, he basically embodies Psalm 23. Like he is the physical living embodiment of what we read. And let me read it again just so we can glimpse this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when you read the story of the feeding of the 5,000, you see the way that Jesus actually lives this out, right? He sees that they are a people that are hurting and lost like sheep without a shepherd. And so he becomes their shepherd. He actually makes them sit down in green grass. He says, sit down, I will feed you, beside the still water of the Sea of Galilee. He restores them physically and spiritually. He is with them in their valley of deep darkness and death. Physically with them. When their prophets are being killed by evil men and their land is occupied by a seemingly invincible empire, when they have been left to wonder if God is with them after waiting for so long, Jesus is with them. He quite literally and miraculously prepares a table before them, a simple but incredible meal that satisfies their wants. In direct contrast and in the presence of their enemies. They are physically in the area that Herod is ruling and Jesus prepares a meal for them. Their baskets overflow with the abundance of God's provision. Jesus, sometimes I read this story and we take it for granted like, oh yeah, Jesus fed 5,000 people. That's pretty cool. He made five loaves and two fish feed 10,000 people potentially. And you forget that what that means is that Jesus actually physically altered matter itself so that it would feed that many people. That he changed the, the atoms and the, hmm, I was an English major, so that's literally the only science term that I know. <laughs> ions, is that a thing? The ions of the bread and the fish, whatever. Um, he alters matter itself. And he embodies goodness and mercy in the midst of their sorrow and their longing. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, and I would imagine that for a lot of us here, this year, 2014, has often felt like Herod's banquet. It has felt confusing and dark, full of evil and death. Or we felt like the crowd lost in a world that is unjust, where pain is a very real thing. And what I want us to remember as we leave a year like 2014 and enter into a new year is that Jesus is present with us and to us in the same way that he was present to the crowds as he fed them, as he walked among them. Just as he was present to a lost and hurting people, he is present to us in our hurt and our grief. Just as Jesus looked on the people and had compassion on them and desired to be with them, he looks on us in that way. He has compassion on us and he desires to be with us. Just as Jesus is attentive to their reality, 
and understood their needs, so he is attentive to our reality. He understands what we're going through. He understands where we need to be met. He understands better than we even think we know what our actual needs are. And whether it's through a simple meal or healing or a a revealing of how he has been with us the entire time, he will meet us in that place. Jesus understands more than anyone what it is like to live in a world where the weight of grief is felt because he had that entire weight on himself on the cross. So he knows what we are feeling. Just as Jesus was their good shepherd, so he is our good shepherd, our living embodiment of Psalm 23. As he met them in their valley of the shadow of death and made them lie down in green pastures by still waters and provided for them in the exact ways they needed, he has been with us through our valley of the shadow of death in the exact ways that we have needed. And as we enter 2015, what I want is to encourage us, encourage our community, encourage our family, like the crowd that we see in this story, that we are to bring ourselves to Jesus in the midst of a dark world to remember that it's actually just better to be with him, even if it doesn't make sense, even if we don't even know what we need or want. It's better to be in the presence of Jesus than to go at it alone. And I believe that he will meet us in that place and he'll meet us with compassion and generosity and infinite love and power. So as 2014 ends and 2015 begins, I want us to remember that, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that Jesus is with us. And what it means that he is with us is what we see in the feeding of the 5,000. It's what we read in Psalm 23. That is his posture towards us as we hurt, as we leave a really hard year and go into hopefully a year that is new and full of life. The valley of the shadow of death doesn't last forever. Um, That's something that I've had to tell myself, I think, a lot this year, having lost friends and um, having felt the weight of a lot of things, that it, it doesn't last forever, and even in it, Jesus is with us. And I don't know how long it will last, um, but I know that it won't, be, um, it won't be forever. And I believe that he will bring incredible hope in life to us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our good shepherd. And thank you that even in the midst of a world that doesn't make sense a lot of the times, that you are good, that you are compassionate and kind, that you meet us exactly where we are, that you allow us to express exactly how we are feeling to you, that you meet our needs in every way. And I ask that for this community, this this church family, as we move into 2015, I ask God that you would bless us and keep us. And not bless us in the Christian way that we say that sometimes, that doesn't mean anything, but that you would actively want good for us. That you would keep us in your powerful protection. That you would guard us, that you would protect us, that you would be with us. I pray God that you would shine your face upon us, that you would look at us and love us deeply and have compassion on us. I pray that you would bring us peace in the midst of chaos, and I pray that you would bring us grace in the midst of a really dark time. I pray that you would help us to be very present to the ways in which you have been present with us in 2014, and and even now as we enter into a time of worship, God, I ask that you would give each person in here the space to reflect 
on how exactly you have been with them through the good and the bad. And would you encourage us and remind us that you will be with us in 2015. Amen.